Good afternoon, and welcome to Books Sandwiched In. My name is Martha Gill, and I'm with the Friends of the Library. Both metaphorically and literally, our topic today is hot. A book by that title, by Mark Hertzgard, about the warming world and what we can do about it. To guide us through uh, this review of climate science and policy is Dr. Jack Fellows, director of the Oak Ridge National Laboratory Climate Change Science Institute. Dr. Fellows' academic background and his professional experiences make him eminently qualified to speak on this topic. With a Ph.D. in civil engineering from the University of Maryland, with a focus on hydrology, geographical information systems, and remote sensing, in 1984 he was selected as the Congressional Science Fellow by the American Geophysical Union, and he worked in Congress on a range of weather and climate-related policy issues. Then he joined the White House Office of Management and Budget, where he helped institute or initiate the Global Change Research Program. In 1997, he became vice president of the University Corporation of Atmospheric Research, and he moved to Tennessee, aren't we glad, in October of last year. Winner of the American Geophysical Union's Edward A. Flynn III Award and the Lifelong Achievement Award from the National Council for Science and the Environment, Dr. Fellows is most welcome to lead our discussion today. Dr. Fellows? Well, it's always great to be eminently qualified in something. So, Martha, thank you very much for that introduction. Um, I don't normally do talks from a laptop, so it's a little bit experimental for me. So I want to thank Emily and Martha for inviting me to be part of this series. As Martha mentioned, I've only been in Tennessee since last October. I'd never been to Tennessee before. I've been very pleasantly surprised at how incredibly friendly people are here and how beautiful your state is. So after 11 months, I have no regrets coming to Tennessee. But it's my pleasure to review this book by Mark Hertzgard, this book, Hot, Living Through the Next 50 Years. I'm not planning on describing anything about the Climate Change Institute that I run or climate science or what climate change means for Tennessee. But I'd be happy to do that with anybody after uh, the talk. Uh, just a footnote on the introduction on how I got to Oak Ridge. Uh, you, you've kind of heard my professional progression. It's not your typical science progression. I spent that year in Congress. I actually met a person named David Stockman, who some people may remember, and he was trying to kill the satellite program that I did my PhD work on. So we had this bet on who would win. I was defending that satellite system and he was trying to kill it. I won that bet, by the way, but in the process we became reasonably good friends and when Ronald Reagan asked him to come to the White House, I went with him. I thought I would spend a year in the Congress, a year in the White House, and then I'd go back to the University of Maryland, but I stayed there for 13 years. So uh, when I went out to Colorado to run a nonprofit private weather and climate research organization, that was a consortium of 110 universities. And I spent about two years trying to connect those universities with their local cities and create a national climate adaptation network. 
but I retired in 2012, and my wife and I actually traveled around the world for two years. And one of the things we did is we walked across Spain. We did this 1,200-year-old pilgrimage from the French Pyrenees to Portugal. So that's 500 miles. It takes about 43 days to do that. You're traveling at two and a half miles an hour. You have a lot of time to think about the future. So I had really loved those connections between cities and scientists. So when I got back from walking across Spain, I actually wrote an iPhone app for for people that want to do that because you had to carry this clunky guide. And right when I had finished that iPhone app, I got this serendipitous phone call from Oak Ridge asking them if I would uh, come out and run this uh, institute. And I came and visited and really liked the people and made the decision. As I, and as I mentioned, I have no regrets. So before I get into the book, how many people have children and grandchildren here? I figured m- most people do. Probably everybody else has a nephew or care about children or, or whatever else. This book, in many ways, is largely about fairy tales and how they teach inspiration, courage, and how some noble hero swoops in and slays the dragon at the last minute. That's the bottom line, essentially, of this book. It's literally a fairy tale. It starts talking about fairy tales, and it ends talking about fairy tales. So the metaphor, I think, may be the author being that noble hero and the evil dragon being our society's greed, consumerism, the lack of climate change, leadership, uh, and so on, that are threatening the author's daughter's future. So maybe a metaphor for him, maybe a metaphor for us. Maybe we're the hero, and he's looking at us to help uh, slay the evil dragon. So this author, he's not a scientist. He's an investigative journalist, and he's written for a lot of prestigious publications, The New Yorker, NPR, Time Magazine. He's also written six books. But more importantly, he's had a ringside seat on the climate debate for the past 20 years, and he's interviewed many of the major players over that time period. So given the emotional nature of this book, uh, and he takes a clearly pro-environmental agenda, but I found the facts in this book and the science to be straightforward, correct, and backed up by a lot of notes, 20 pages of notes and references, matter of fact. So if you want to understand what has gone on in climate, both from a policy and a science perspective for the last 20 years, this is an an excellent book. And I was interested in it in particular because I've lived through this 20 years. I know most of the people that he interviews. I've worked with most of them. So it was a great walk for me through history. But maybe more importantly, I have four kids. And they're all out of the house now, what we call off the payroll Uh, But they're all living in climate-stressed areas. I have kids in Colorado, California, and New York City, Manhattan. Uh, And I also have, uh, my youngest son is actually in the Peace Corps, and he's in the part of Nicaragua that has suffered greatly this summer from heat waves and the lack of rain. So this is just as important to me as it is to the author in many respects. And if you were here last month when Aaron Gill did the review on Bill Nordhaus's uh, Climate Casino book, this is a perfect marriage between that book and and the book that I'm reviewing today. If you think uh, Nordhaus, if you were here, he takes this very sort of cool and unharried tone 
in his book where he looks at the CO2 problem really as having a simple economic answer, that you can use carbon taxes and allow the market to slowly and steadily reduce the output of CO2. So hot is anything but that. I mean, the author basically says it's critical for leaders today to change and to deal with climate change to protect his young daughter's future. So you can look at CO2 in the atmosphere many different ways. So you can look at it as a byproduct of good fortune and capitalism, or you can look at it as the result of a toxic way of life, and, and anywhere in between that sort of spectrum. So what HOT does is it focuses on the prosperity. Well, let's say the the truth of the matter here is that over about the last 4,000 years, there hasn't been a lot of material human improvement. From 1800 B.C. to 1880, uh, there wasn't a lot of improvement. It wasn't really until the Industrial Revolution that we had centuries then of uh, unprecedented prosperity, and that was largely driven by oil, gas, and uh, coal. So you can look at this from many different ways. Now what HOT does is it focuses on how that prosperity hasn't been uniform around the world and also how it hasn't necessarily been well managed and, and what to do about that. So again, he looks at the climate science and policy impacts over the past 20 years. Great review of that history. He then describes the unpleasant world that his daughter will eventually inherit. Uh, He spends quite a bit of time looking at promising mitigation and adaptation efforts. And then he asks the question, have the rich countries actually committed a crime against the poor by not addressing this issue? And then he finishes up the book by proposing a national and international initiative, quite similar to President Kennedy's uh, Apollo program in the 1960s. So that was designed to put a man on the moon, and we marshaled all our resources to do that. This would be similar, but a green Apollo program where we're marshaling all our efforts and our leadership to take on the climate change issue. So, uh, again, he summarizes the, the science and the policy. So he spends uh, quite a bit of this book actually looking at all the international climate summits that have uh, gone on over the years and what they have and haven't accomplished uh, in terms of limiting greenhouse gases and setting any kind of targets for uh, temperatures. So that includes the 1992 Earth Summit, the 1997 Kyoto meetings, and even the recent 2009 Copenhagen meeting. He also looks at all the science, so he reports on all the intergovernmental panel climate change reports all the way from the early 90s to, to virtually today. And he looks at their conclusions, that the warming is unequivocally due to humans, that impacts are happening earlier than projected. This warming is very hard to turn off because of the long lifetime of CO2 in the atmosphere, and that extremes will become much more common. So he looks at the 1988 Midwest drought that cost $40 billion in losses and at the 2003 European heat wave that actually killed over 70,000 people. And as I said earlier, you know, his science is uh, quite consistent with what the science community looks at, at the science. He also questions uh, the motives, integrity, and the ethics of the fossil fuel industry and how their financially backed skeptics have continued to question the science and actually delay any action here. 
But he does acknowledge that it may take 25 to 50 years before we can fully wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. It took about 50 to go from wood to coal. So it's not surprising that this transition may take some time, but he asked the question, do we have that long? So then he looks with that backdrop at what kind of world his daughter is going to inherit. So he looks at her generation's choices, and there are essentially three. They can try to mitigate this problem, they can adapt to it, or they can suffer, or some combination of the three. And he asks, what is our role in those? What phases of those do we want that generation to have to face? So he starts by looking at um, future extremes, and he documents how 145 million people on this planet, most of our major financial centers, and about $3 trillion of our global assets, energy, transportation, water, are all below three feet above sea level. So they are quite threatened based on the current projections of sea level rise also talks about how devastating floods are now becoming twice as frequent as they have been in the past and how by 2050, the middle of this century, those countries that are already water-stressed, the people that live in those countries are going to increase from about 800 million people to 3 billion people. And that's a big issue because floods do kill quite a few people, but it's thousands. Droughts kill millions of people. So you can think about that 2003 European heat wave that I talked about that killed 70,000. If you think about extrapolating that, that this is a serious issue. He also talks a lot about social justice and global instability. So 80% of the greenhouse gases are generated by about 20% of the people in the world, mostly who got rich from fossil fuel-dependent economies. Uh, And the rich can move or absorb some of these impacts. The poorest, 20%, who have generated less than 1% of the greenhouse gases will likely be 90% of the climate change casualties. So he asks about the stability of the world in that kind of situation, the difference between the haves and the have-nots when we get all stressed by climate change, and what the responsibility of the rich are relative to these issues. So that's the end of the bummer part of this book. And then he, there's quite a few pages of this. I remember when I got to that page, I was, um, I was going to consider apologizing to you all if you read the book because it is quite depressing up to that point. But he turns and focuses then on promising adaptation and mitigation uh, activities that are going on right now. So he spends quite a bit of time actually uh, contrasting Holland and New Orleans So both of those countries are largely under sea level. Uh, 70% of Holland's GDP is actually earned below sea level. So this is a critical issue to the Dutch, and they're way out of front in terms of the rest of the world's planning on climate adaptation. They have a 200-year climate adaptation plan. It includes spending $2 billion a year on climate adaptation to ensure that they can deal with a one-meter level of sea level rise. That's about $360 per person per capita in in Holland. That's essentially what most of us spend on fire insurance. So not out of the realm of what people can do, but that plan includes planning for one in 10,000 storms. Here in the U.S., we plan for one in 100 at, at best. 
It also buys people out, their property and their homes, if it's just too expensive to try to protect their property. That's a pretty radical social contract, and it's not something that we do very effectively here in the United States. The irony here is that the Dutch started this adaptation planning in 1913, actually, based on advice from an engineer from New Orleans. So I learned a lot about New Orleans. I mean, you know, when Katrina hit New Orleans, in my head I thought, you know, should we build that city back? But I even learned in this book that it's the biggest port in the United States. It's critically important to our national economic and energy security, and obviously great music and culture come out of that town. But this author believes few lessons were learned from Katrina. Katrina was a $200 billion incident. And he cites that there's really no similar social contract or cooperation in New Orleans the way there is in Holland, for instance. There's actually quite a bit of corruption in New Orleans. The Corps of Engineers, which is responsible for almost all the levees in that area, are actually destroying protective mangrove swamps and replacing them with hard barriers out in the Gulf. So he questions the Corps of Engineers And given their record during Katrina and post-Katrina, why they're even still in charge, matter of fact. So he also looks at cities and regions in the country that are quite progressive in this area. So he looked at three in particular, King County, Washington, New York City, and Chicago. Now, I've worked with all three of those. They are remarkable places. The King County Executive, Ron Smith, he's now the Deputy for Housing and Urban Development in in Washington, D.C., and I did a National Climate Adaptation Summit in 2010 in Washington, and he was a keynote speaker of mine. He's actually the son of a Baptist preacher, and that guy can deliver the same way that a Baptist <laughs> preacher uh, delivers. It's, it's awesome to listen to him. But when he was in King County, he convinced his citizens to replace urban sprawl with what he called smart growth, green buildings, land preservation, zero escaping, water reuse, uh, developing communities so you could walk to work or to retail. And he was successful in raising taxes for, for climate change projects, wildly successful, matter of fact. And as a result of that, King County has actually exceeded the Kyoto Protocol emission targets. Uh, very admirable on that. And he drove all that activity in King County by asking a very simple question. What does the science say about 2050? And let's work backwards to address those kinds of conditions. Chicago, in particular, it has three days a year right now that are above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Climate models are predicting that by the turn of the century, that'll be over 70. So they pay a lot of attention to this. And they spent a lot of time talking to Ron Sims and learning from what they did in King County. And they based the Chicago Action Plan on the King County experience. And so did New York City, where my son lives. In fact, in New York City, I I worked a lot with them. And just to give you an idea, they pump about a million gallons of water out of the subway every single day because it's all under the water table. So one of the things they wanted to know from me is, at the turn of the century, what size pumps are we going to need to be able to keep up with this? Because the expectation is that we we may have less rainfall, but there are going to be more extreme events. So there will be a lot more flooding of the subway. So both Chicago and New York have made tremendous progress. 
Now, he turns his attention a lot in this book to agriculture. I'm not quite sure why he does that. Agriculture is 10 to 30% of the problem. Really, buildings and cars are a big part of the greenhouse gas emission problem. But it is interesting what he did. He looks at the vulnerability of the global wine industry. That's a $50 billion industry. So higher temperatures actually increase alcohol content in grapes, which leads to much poorer wines. The estimate is actually that production of wine grapes could be down by 80% by the turn of the century. And some growers are starting to actually relocate to areas that are cooler. Some are turning to biofarming, so they're using techniques using less water, more mulching, more shade, things like that. But it's a minority. There's a long way to go. But great practices that he highlighted uh, that are going on. He's from California, so this is in his backyard. Uh, A lot of this work was done in conjunction with the University of California, Davis. He also turns his attention on Africa, and particularly the Sahel. So the Sahel, if you don't know, has been transformed since the 1980s, largely through local encouragement of organic farming. Different from the way we do organic farming here in the U.S., but very, very different from industrial agriculture. So that includes diversity of crops. One of the biggest problems with industrial agriculture are monocrops, where a farmer plants just one species. The biggest problem with that is bees. So that crop blooms. Bees have lots of food. They all die. Then the bees all die. We're dependent on about 60% of our food from bee pollination, so that's a big issue. They do the very interesting low-tech water capture. They basically build funnels into their plants. They use natural predators instead of pesticides, and they allow trees to grow out of the natural fertilizers. So they use manure, and there are tree seeds in manure, and those are robust. They're local. They don't die, typically. I mean, we have a lot of organizations, even in the U.S., that send trees to Africa, but they're not local, and they don't typically survive, or they need too much water. So this has transformed the Sahel. Now, the Sahel had low yields of food anyway, so anything was a significant improvement. But he still points to this and said this is probably the way to go. So he looks at industrial agriculture, though, and sees how it has made significant improvements. Global grain production increased about 260% between 1950 and 1984. That's the fastest rate in human history. But unfortunately, it's largely due to subsidized and unsustainable use of chemical fertilizers, energy, and water. So he actually looks at Chinese farmers in particular, since that is a very uh, growing economy. The Chinese farmers actually use two to three times the amount of fertilizers as the global average. So now their organic matter in their soil is less than 1%. That's only 10% of the global average. And they are rapidly depleting their aquifers in the techniques that they use in agriculture. So he asked the question, if organic farming is tough and industrial agriculture has all the issues, how are we going to feed 9 billion people over the next couple of centuries? So he did look at Germany, and Germany has actually tried organic farming. They had drops in yields of 25% the first year, 
But then over the next four or five years, it basically came up to the uh, original levels. So I think that holds quite a bit of promise. But there are some crops that only reproduce below certain temperatures. Corn is a good example. That only reproduces below 95 degrees. So you need to look at different strategies. Uh, Even though he may be pro-environment, he says maybe genetic engineering, GMOs, may be part of the answer here. It has issues. He still believes that lowering the use of fossil fuel and wasting water in industrial agriculture is the key, but he doesn't rule out these other uh, things. So he did look at industry also and what they're doing, particularly on mitigation. So he picked in particular DuPont, which is maybe not a company that we think is particularly green, but it turns out that they have cut their greenhouse emissions by 72% between 1990 and 2004. They've done that largely through energy efficiency. Now, this was a good business decision for them. They saved billions of dollars doing this, and they actually have done much better than the IPCC emissions target. So I think there are lessons to be learned there. Uh, we talked last month when Erin Gill did her excellent review on Bill Nordhaus's book about insurance. And this is a personal opinion of mine. It's not necessarily out of the book. But I think we are going to uh, understand climate change better through insurance, not through me telling you that something is going to get two degrees warmer. It's, that's pretty abstract. You don't really know what that means. But I just joined the Willis Research Network. Willis Re is one of the oldest reinsurance companies in the world. Not just Willis, but that whole industry is kind of waking up to climate change risk. The president of Willis told me this great story about fire. He went back to the 1700s and said fires were wiping out the insurance industry periodically. And they hadn't really incorporated the risk and science of fire into their insurance. And they did that, and then they were able to uh, deal with these large mega fires that happen occasionally across the world. But they have a lot of clout. They collect $1.4 trillion of premiums every year, and they control $16 trillion of assets. And they reinvest that almost exclusively in fossil fuel industries. So not only could they control our purse springs, but they can make a huge difference in terms of investments. So there are quite a few companies that have pledged to become carbon neutral. Two outstanding ones are Swiss Re and Munich Re. And I think those two companies are probably going to lead that industry. So another interesting case about insurance, and this will be a little closer to home for us in terms of kind of homeowner policies. After the 2004 and 2005 hurricane season in Florida, insurance companies basically stopped writing individual homeowner policies. The risk was just too high. So Florida uh, self-insured. So a Category 4 or 5 hurricane hitting Florida, the estimates are anywhere from about 50 to $65 billion worth of damages. So the state of Florida's budget is um, roughly $60 billion. So this is basically a catastrophe waiting to happen. There's not enough assets. It will bankrupt that state to be able to cover the policies that they have written. So at some point in the future... Any of us who are going to uh, apply for a mortgage or whatever it might be, 
those instruments are going to be tied to insurance, and those insurance are going to be required to reflect the risk of associated with climate change. So I think that's how we are going to experience climate change long before it's too hot or, or anything else. So out of this section of the book, he has some lessons learned. And those are, don't be lucky, be smart. <laughs> Regardless of your ideology, where you fall on this range of how you feel about CO2 and climate change, understand the science, plan ahead, involve all stakeholders in transparent decision-making, create responsible mitigation and adaptation options, have checks and balances so nothing gets out of kilter, make sure that you get the support of your citizens up front, and recognize that individuals can only do enough. Governments have a large role here, and we need to impress upon them the importance of their leadership. So this is the section of the book where he asks again, have rich countries through their lack of action actually created a crime against the poor countries? He's looking at leaders, leaders of our country, leaders of other wealthy G8 kind of countries, but he's also looking at companies, too, and he singles in pretty focused on ExxonMobil, matter of fact. So he looks, uh, as an example, at a country like Bangladesh. Bangladesh has been experiencing horrific uh, floods and cyclones for centuries. In 1991, they had a cyclone that killed 138,000 people. Now, they're one of those countries that have contributed very little to CO2 output, and they're very poor. So, ironically, they have done some of the most advanced adaptation planning outside of Holland and the UK, but their plan costs $5 billion, well beyond their means, and few people are extending help to them. So he looks at who might be to blame for this situation, and he actually reviews all the failed attempts that have occurred at Kyoto, Copenhagen, the Earth Summit, to actually create funds to help poor countries. Secretary Clinton actually proposed a $100 billion climate fund for lesser developed countries at Copenhagen, but it turned out that no one wanted to actually make that binding. So it ended up being just a side agreement. There have been billions and billions of dollars pledged to these funds, but very little actually given. He also looks at the continued political paralysis. Two-thirds of our federal uh, energy subsidies, they continue to go to fossil, to fossil fuel industry, and those companies continue to fight against climate policy and legislation. He actually discusses <clears throat> the possibility of a clash action lawsuit against ExxonMobil, kind of similar to the tobacco industry class action suit. And that's an interesting one. This isn't in the book, but a group of young people actually sued the federal government recently um, for their lack of leadership on climate change. I'm not sure where that lawsuit will go, but... Uh, I thought that was quite a strong voice from the next generation saying, you know, you need to help us. So then he shifts to his recommendation about what to do about all this. He starts that by talking about that this climate change is an unprecedented planet-scale experiment that could end very, very badly for humankind. So erring on the side of caution, even in the face of uncertainties, would be quite wise because 
if we take very long to address this, it's just going to be harder and harder to deal with it. That's called the precautionary principle. This has been around now for decades. So the best practices that he talks about are part of what he calls a green Apollo program. So he's suggesting that we adopt the best practices that are in this book, the ones that I've talked about, King County, Chicago, New York, Holland, the Sahel, DuPont, and so on, um, but in combination with something similar to what Bill Nordhaus was talking about in his book, a gradual carbon tax or cap-and-trade to reflect the true cost of CO2 and to hopefully drive down its uh, output. Those are critically important, but what he believes is needed the most is this Kennedy-esque rally for a national goal and leadership and leadership and leadership. He says that over and over again. Then he finishes the book by writing a letter to his daughter that he is planning for her to read uh, 10 years into the future. That letter is a very emotional letter to his daughter, hoping that things get better and apologizing if he was not the noble hero in the climate change fairy tale. So thank you very much. Um, I'm curious... Uh, with people like John Holdren in the White House, what do you see as the prospect in either the rest of this administration or future administrations for turning some of these lessons into uh, real decision and then from decision into real action? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, John Holdren is actually the person that asked me to put on that National Climate Adaptation Summit in 2010. So I know him quite well. He's up against a daunting task. Washington, D.C., one of the reasons why I left Washington, D.C. in 1997 is to get out of Washington, D.C., and the political paralysis that uh, happens there. So from my perspective, I, I don't mean this with any disrespect. I kind of write off Washington. To me, climate is a regional, local issue. My focus is on mayors. Mayors are the people that have to deliver reliable water, food, energy to, to people. So if I have the choice of taking a bunch of scientists up to Congress to talk about climate change or taking a bunch of very angry mayors to Washington, it's the latter. That's the way I want to do. And I think that's the only way that things are really going to change is when, you know, people in power in cities and states are going to Washington and saying, you need to do something here. We're out here trying to figure out what's going on, and you're not helping. So I think that's when it will change. It's not because John Holdren's heart isn't in the wrong place, but, you know, you look at President Obama. He speaks very strongly about climate change, and he's passing the executive orders to reduce federal CO2 emissions, and that's the best he can essentially do. So he's talking about the federal agencies, and I think that will happen. But that has very little to do with national and international issues. He's played almost no role in the international level and not a very strong role at the national level. So uh, it's not an indictment of him. It's just the reality of Washington right now. One paper, the Wall Street Journal, which I read every day, doesn't really believe that there's global warming. This room is full of people who do believe that. It seems like to me that the, the media may have a, a big role 
all over the world in, in trying to, to frame the discussion so that people understand that there's a problem? Uh, that's a great question and comment. I think the media plays a fundamental role here. And I say that from uh, the following perspective. If you look at the intergovernmental panel climate change reports and things like that, that represents about 97% of the climate scientists' community. That's a very strong percentage in my, my point of view. Now, the other 3% range from believe maybe it's an issue to complete deniers. So 97% against a couple of very, very well-funded fossil fuel-backed skeptics. That's not a fair representation of, of the debate. And, but these people get the same exposure as the 97%. So I think the media has a very strong responsibility to balance these arguments and the science community has a strong responsibility to, uh, you know, be vocal about that. But it's hard. I mean, I had scientists in the organization that I was running in Colorado who got death threats. So, you know, as, a, as an organization, uh, I'm concerned about protecting them. There are a lot of times where I discourage people going on and debating d- denialists because... These are not necessarily nice people. In fact, uh, the author of this book actually highlights one of them in particular, Fred Stites, who I actually know. He's a key fossil fuel-backed denier. He was also a spokesman of the tobacco industry. He was a key expert. He has no background in climate, but he was a key expert in the tobacco industry, essentially trying to sell us that there was no health impacts of, of tobacco, he got $45 million from the tobacco industry. I haven't gotten $45 million from, from anybody. And, you know, if you get $45 million from somebody, you probably are going to say whatever they tell you to say. I'll take a slightly different angle on it that, uh, and speaking with prejudice, I'm not a denier, but one of the great uh, talents of the anti-science movement has been ability to deal with the media. And so let me insult half the room or so. You guys are quite inept in dealing with the media you, and with public not opinion. You're insulting me. I, I know this to be true. <laughs> and so perhaps the responsibility, Robin, is not with the media, but with scientists' ineptitude and unwillingness to deal with the political arena. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, it, that's, a, that's a great comment. The, the science community is, are the ultimate skeptics. Their job is to prove themselves wrong. When somebody sticks a microphone in front of them and says something like, you know, do you believe climate change is real, they're going to fall back on the facts. A denier will essentially decide what he wants to say and then find the information he needs to support that. There's a couple of very good scientists, but they're outgunned and outfinanced in remarkable ways. I mean, nobody that I know in the science community is funded to talk to the media. I mean, we're funded to do basic research. So it, it's a tough game. But your point is well taken, and it's not lost on the science community. I don't want to put you on the spot, but how are Oak Ridge and Knox County doing? Uh, as informed citizens, what should we be asking for? 
from the city? Yes. Uh, you don't even actually have to ask much of the city. I mean, you could improve the energy efficiency of your home and drive less. That would be a huge help here. Now, the city, uh, I recognize some of the faces from the Climate Knoxville rally in July, I think it was. And so that was focused on improving energy efficiency of low-cost housing and the new EPA regulation. So I think the city is quite engaged in, in this. I just started actually a project with the city to help them uh, incorporate climate change into their planning, particularly about water use and, and energy. So that's just starting. In fact, I'm taking the director of the water department to a conference with me in Colorado in November. So I think they're very open. Um, you know, I was actually very pleasantly surprised at that rally because I didn't know whether I would be heckled or what. I just, you know, I'm new to Tennessee. I don't know what the environment is here. People were incredibly supportive and came up afterwards and, you know, thanked me for what I do and for being there. And, um, you know, it was quite good. Oak Ridge is doing a lot. I'm not remembering all the details, but they've cut their energy use by about 28% over the last couple of years. Uh, if you're on that campus, there are electric cars everywhere. There's electric car um, charging stations everywhere. I, I think at one point they said, look, we created this climate institute. We, we need to look a little greener. So they have, uh, they have invested quite a bit in, in that area, and that's a big part of the lab's focus in terms of being part of this community is to be an example of uh, stewardship for the environment. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, my pleasure. I think we ought to get that word out about the threat to wine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Powell. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.